From PRI Public Radio International. From PRI Public Radio International. Public Radio International. International. The day Sandra should have been dead started like a normal day. She was cutting school with the girls in her gang. We're standing there, a couple girls, a group of girls passed us, and they looked at us, and we looked at them, and of course, automatically, our mouths flew open without thinking, what are you looking at? Well, you got something? What do you be about? And started asking them what their affiliation is and all this stuff. And, you know, we started talking shit to them and, and all this stuff. And um, they pulled out a gun, and they said, okay, you know, you want to talk shit now? Let's talk shit. You know, and I panicked. I mean, nobody had ever pulled a gun at me. I was like, holy you know, and I just started kind of running around and I was like, oh my God, they're going to kill us. They're actually going to kill us. It finally sunk in that somebody was going to kill us, that that would be it, the end of my life. At like 14, somebody was going to kill me. And it kind of flashed in my mind that here comes my mother finding me on a street corner with a bullet through my head and blood gushing everywhere. And oh my God, you know. So everybody just kind of spread out. And I ran and I lost my shoes and my jacket, my purse. I lost everything. I was just like throwing things off me to make me lighter for I could run faster. And finally I jumped into a dumpster. And I, I stood there. And I must have stood there a good hour, hour and a half. And I just stood there and prayed and shaked and tried to not make noise. And I heard them run past me and run past me and, you know, screaming bitch and looking for people. And and I was there and it was praying to God that they didn't open the dumpster and find me. Because if they would have, I think I would have been dead. In movies, in books... When somebody nearly dies, it changes them. You know? They mend their ways. They treat people better. But in real life, it can go either way. Sandra waited and finally walked home alone, smelling like garbage, unrepentant. My mother asked me, where's your shoes and your purse and your jacket and everything? And I told her that these girls were going to beat us up. I lied and I said that. They started talking to us. They were gangbangers. I told her like that, that they were gangbangers and they were looking for trouble. Knowing not, full not well. Not, not, yeah, knowing full well. <laughs> knowing full well that I was the one that started and that I was gangbanging. But even after that, you didn't quit the gang? No. Um, why? It's a lot of different answers. Why? Um, We didn't get hurt. We got to go back and tell our story. And none of us said that we hid. You know, none of us said we hid. What'd you say? We said that we outran them. As if that's more heroic. It's better than saying I hid in a garbage can. That's cowardly. But outrunning them is still just But they had a gun. It's fleeing, but it's honorable fleeing. (laughs) Well, from WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today in our program, stories of people who thought they were about to die and how it affected them or didn't affect them. Act one, the day after Kevin slept on the spot Jesus was crucified. Act two, the day Lawrence left the AIDS clinic for the big road trip. Act three, 
the day Claudia asked her brother some questions. Fact four, the day Cheryl got the news. Fact five, the day Matthew saw Bridget. Stay with us. Act one. So what if you knew? What if you really knew? The date and time of your own death. Well, Kevin Kelly spent most of his 20s wandering around Asia. He was a freelance photographer. And he found himself photographing a lot of religious ceremonies. He found himself drawn to religious ceremonies. He was confused about what he believed. I I would get twisted and caught up, and um, these things were sort of in the background consuming me. And actually, I found that that I could think about little else for for many, many months, that that behind all that I was doing, there was always this unresolved question of, um, was God real? Um, If he was real, then how could we ignore him? And if if we were trying to... uh, not ignore him, what would we do? And if um, he was real, then what about these other things that people said about God? But all that changed. When he was 27, he came into Jerusalem. It was the weekend of both Easter and Passover, and the city was flooded with tourists. So I entered Jerusalem on Easter um, with a simple expectation that I was going to photograph uh, yet another religious uh, ceremony, another religious uh, festival, and then um, for various reasons, I got locked out of my um, hostel room. They had a curfew, and um, I didn't make it back in time. Uh, and I was in quite a fix because I was a stranger in this uh, very strange town. Um, what had happened, I didn't have enough money to stay elsewhere, nor did I even have knowledge of where to go. So I wandered the old town of Jerusalem at night, which had been shuttered up and um, was uh, a time machine. It was uh, as if I had been transported back to the 15th century because all the um, souvenir vendors were gone and what was left were the um, labyrinthian paths of cobbled uh, passageways and I wandered around for a number of hours and it was getting colder. Eventually, I found myself at the one uh, place that was still open, which was some of the churches. And um, particularly, um, I finally settled into the um, Church of the Holy Scepter, which is um, called and viewed as the church built over the um, mound where um, Jesus Christ was crucified. And... um, I was getting very tired, and uh, there weren't many people around, and so eventually I laid myself uh, out on the about the only flat area that was left, which was this marble slab uh, underneath some um, pendants that had incense on them, and this was presumably the the slab that um, commemorated the exact position of the of the crosses. Uh, so I slept there. I, I slept on the um, the crucifixion spot on that night because it was the only place, in, there was no place in the inn. I slept there until um, uh, until early morning um, when uh, the activity started to um, to increase and people started coming in and. Um, uh, I went out and followed the crowd where it was going when they were going out to the um, to the tombs area in Jerusalem, and I went out and there was uh, 
um, some chairs set up, um, folding chairs set up in front of um, this tomb area. And as the um, sun was coming up on that Easter morning, uh, I was staring at empty tombs. And um, for a reason that I cannot comprehend, as I sat on that chair, contemplating this this uh, view of the sun early sun morning coming into the empty tombs, all that I've been wrestling with for the past uh, many, many years in, in thinking about religion um, sort of became resolved in my mind. And at that very moment, I, I believed that uh, Jesus Christ had indeed risen from those tombs. In an instant, the, the, the tension of, of trying to figure things out was resolved because now, suddenly, uh, everything was figured out. It, it was as if you had been working on a problem for a long time and suddenly the answer was there. It was very clear that was the answer. And although there were th many things that were still um, not clear to you, you were very certain that you were on the right path. Having that realization that, uh, that I believe that, that Jesus Christ had actually risen from um, those tombs did not settle a thousand and one other things about what one was supposed to do with that, what I was supposed to do with that. Did that mean I was supposed to be a monk? Did that mean I was supposed to be a, an evangelist? Did that mean that I had to immediately um, renounce uh, all that I had and um, get into sackcloth and asses and march out into the desert? Uh, all that was left unopened, and that is, in fact, what... Um, occupied my mind as I went back to my hostel to lay down and, and think about because uh, I had no clue what it really meant to me uh, ultimately. And that's what I was um, pondering when I uh, sort of was laying there napping. And I wouldn't say it's a voice, but there was an idea that came into my mind that just would not go away, and that was that I should live as if I would die in six months, that I should really, truly live and that I could not tell for certain whether I would really die, but that um, either way that I should live as if I was going to die. And so that, that was the assignment. I'm a pretty rational person. I'm, I'm pretty logical. And uh, after thinking the thought that I should live as if I was going to die in six months, the first thought that comes to my head was, you know, well, that's pretty silly. I have no evidence whatsoever uh, of, uh, you know, I could live like I'm going to die six months and not die at all. It would just be kind of an interesting exercise. But at the same time, um, it was equally probable that I might die in six months. There was, it happened all the time. There was no, no guarantee that I wouldn't die. And so fairly quickly, I, just, I decided that, that I could not settle that issue of whether I would really die or not or just think that I was going to die in six months. And that um, in either case, the important thing was to live as if I really believed that I was going to die in six months, um, which is what I set out to do. next couple of days had a kind of joyous experience of saying, okay, um, what do I do? 
uh, for six months if I have only six months to live? And um, yeah, answers to that surprised me as much as the assignment because um, after thinking about it through and contemplating it, the, f the conclusion that I came to was that what I wanted to do for six months was to go home and be ordinary, to, um, to uh, go back to my parents, to help them um, take out the trash and trim the hedges and move furniture around, and to be with them. And I was, I was really shocked by that because I thought that with six months to live, I would um, climb Mount Everest or I would uh, go scuba diving to the depths of the ocean or get in a speedboat and see how fast I could go. But instead, I wanted to um, go back home and um, be with my family for, for that time. I, of course, did not tell anybody uh, such a, my crazy idea. Um, this is, in fact, the first time I'm really talking about it publicly because it was a, it's a very um, uh, scary and sort of alarming idea, and um, I, I, never, I never told anybody why I, uh, why I was coming home. I got back to where my parents live in New Jersey, and um, things were unbelievably ordinary. They... Um, and yet I found myself uh, relishing the ordinariness and finding um, it in some ways as exotic as anything that I had traveled uh, to see. And so I was involved in, you know, I helped around the house, I did, uh, dug up shrubs, I uh, worked on a deck, I um, moved furniture, washed dishes, and um, I, I was intending to kind of spend my last remaining six months at home getting to know my parents better and, and myself, hopefully. But about three months into that, um, my <laughs> travel urges, I guess, got the better of me. Uh, and what I was most concerned about is I wanted to see my brothers and sisters, who uh, I had four brothers and sisters, and they were scattered all across the country. And so I felt very strongly that I wanted to see them before I died. And I... Uh, got the idea that the way to see them was to ride my bicycle across the country and visit them on bicycle. But before I did that, I um, made up a will uh, to uh, uh, dispose of the little things that I had, and I had some money left over. And uh, one of the things that I did with that money was I went to the bank and um, got some cashier's checks for like $500,000, and I... Um, I mailed the money uh, to uh, various people anonymously as gifts. And um, I think giving away those thousands of dollars was the, uh, the first true act of charity I'd ever done because there was absolutely no way for any kind of gratitude or elevated um, feelings to come back to me because the people had no idea who had sent them that money. remarkable to see the consequences of, of getting an anonymous gift like that because um, when you get a check for a thousand dollars in the mail you immediately become suspicious of all your friends of having given that to you and uh, so there's this sort of like the suspicion of uh, charity suspicion of goodness that starts to infect um, uh, 
the people that are around you and um, you look at someone you think, hmm, I wonder if he gave me that thousand dollars. I had enough money to um, left over to uh, basically pay for food and, and whatnot on my um, bicycle journey across America. And uh, the path that I had to visit all my brothers and sisters was not a direct route. Going from San Francisco to New York, uh, I actually had to go up to Idaho and back down to Texas and then back up through um, Indiana, so it was a 5,000-mile trip. Uh, the day, which uh, coincidentally um, was exactly six months from... Um, when I had this assignment was was uh, October 31st, was Halloween. And so um, the plan would be that I um, would ride back home so that I would come back to die uh, on the day after Halloween. There are a lot of people who have trouble staying in the present. There are, there are some people who like to, to slip into the past as a, as a means to um, perhaps fantasize or escape, and um, they find that the past is the place that they retreat to, and I often retreat to the future. I was not a person who, who planned or had a career uh, staged out or who had... Um, uh, you know, a particular woman he wanted to marry someday or, or some vision of a, of a house. The future that I found so hard to give up was a much more insidious type. It was that of, um, uh, I like to um, buy this record because, you know, in the future I want to hear the song again and again. Or um, I will... Um, uh, I will read this book, and um, there's some cool ideas in it because someday I may write an article about this, and it's kind of it's good to know that there there was a sense in which my entire life was shifted to the future, and and the, the thought of sort of doing something now for for the enjoyment or the pleasures or the principle or the function of just right now, without any sense at all that it would ever be used again or that it could ever be brought forward was extremely difficult and disconcerting, and um, I, I fought it uh, day by day and tooth by tooth. One of the ways I dealt with this was that I was actually able, by the last weeks, to not think about my life beyond Halloween. There was, there was a, a way in which I had just, each time a thought came up about something that was beyond this horizon, I just said, nope, can't think about it, it doesn't work. Um, we have to, to dwell in the present. And um, at the same time I was doing that, I, and I was able to do that, uh, I also decided that it was an entirely unnatural and inhumane way to live, and that... Um, having a future is part of what being human is about, and that when you take away the future for humans, you take away a lot of the humanness, and that it's not actually a very good thing to live entirely in the present, that one needs to have a past and one needs to have a future to be fully human. So he bicycled across the country. 
And as he did, he found himself increasingly obsessed with death, with dying. He was making drawings and writing haikus along the way. And as he went across the country, they became more and more dark, more and more preoccupied with with death. And as he traveled across the country, the other thing is that he always had to find a place to stay every night, right? And at first, he just tried what he had done in Jerusalem. That is, he would just find a church, and he would camp out on the church lawn. But um, people got upset at that. And so what he uh, decided to do instead is that um, at each town that he would come into, he would find some quiet residential street, and he'd go up to a house, and he'd say, Hi, this is who I am. I'm bicycling across the country. I've just eaten dinner, he would say, so they wouldn't feel obligated to feed him. Can I camp out and back? And invariably, they would say yes. And then invariably, they would also, at some point, invite him in for coffee. So I would um, spend my evenings uh, with entirely ordinary people. And my job at that point was to tell them my story. It was to tell them how great a time I was having. Because if I wasn't having a great time, they were really disappointed. Because I was riding for them. I was vicariously doing what they'd always wanted their lives to do. And so... Um, the more I enjoyed my time and the more in the present I was living, uh, the more they enjoyed it and the more it, it uplifted them. And so that was my, uh, that was basically my job. a journey that began at the tomb of Jesus and as I set off to uh, my own presumed death I did indeed think about um, uh, Jesus Christ uh, we have the the history in the Gospels of, of Jesus's torment in his soul as, as he approached what he knew of his his uh, uh, anointed time to die, so it was it was it was again that that very harsh uh, information of knowing when you're going to die, and um, Jesus, you know, um, soul was 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 um, in in great turmoil and pain because 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 of knowing that, and I and I did I, I think I did experience some of of that. Not because I had the same weight, I was just my own life, but um, Jesus prayed that this burden be lifted and and there were days uh, when I did um, pray that that if I didn't have to die, I really would rather not. By late fall, I was um, pedaling through the Appalachians, and it was getting colder and colder, and my hands were freezing on the bicycles, and there was ice on my tents in the morning when I got up. And um, as each day went on, I was coming closer and closer to terrain that, that I was familiar with and that felt like home. And uh, I was riding into New Jersey, and um, uh, I was elated. I was elated that I had accomplished this, this long journey. And I was elated that I was home to see my, my parents. And uh, I came in um, to their house on Halloween day. And um, 
I was so filled with with ideas and things and emotions that I, I, I didn't really say very much. And I and again, I, I, I couldn't say very much. I, I think we had a wonderful dinner. They were, of course, glad to see me because they hadn't seen me in a long time. They knew I was coming back. And we had a wonderful dinner. Uh, you know, we had baskets of candy, which I uh, gave out to the kids. And um, we had a discussion that night, which was... Um, um, about nothing in particular. It was not about the future. It was just about, um, I think, talking about our family and my brothers and sisters, and I was telling them all that I'd learned about them. And so it was a very uh, together and, um, again, uh, uh, not a very dramatic evening, but just uh, a pleasant one, the kind of, of one that you might have a memory about um, as you were dying which was not a special evening, but just uh, an ordinary evening. And I went to bed that night, um, which was a very difficult thing to do because I fully, I mean, I was fully prepared at that point um, never to wake up again. I, you know, I had been praying, I had gotten everything arranged, and I was at that point, I'd fully gone through in my own mind, in my own soul, all the things that I might have regretted, and I had righted as, as many of those as I thought I had, I could through letters, and um, I was prepared as as much as anybody c could be prepared to die. And so I went to um, bed while the kids were still ringing the doorbells, um, and I went to sleep because I was very tired after that that long trip. And um, I didn't know what was going to happen the next day. I thought that was I had done all that I could, and um, the next morning I woke up. And the next morning I woke up and it was as if the next morning I woke up and it was as if I had the entire my entire life again. I had the next morning I woke up and I had my entire life again. I had my future again. There was nothing special about the day. It was another ordinary day. I was reborn into ordinariness, but what more could one ask for? Nearly two decades after that happened, Kevin Kelly is now the executive editor of a magazine about the future, Wired Magazine. I'm a savior of the king, of the king, oh, praising Thank you. 
more people who nearly died, and what they made of it in a minute when our program continues. This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of writers and performers and documentary producers to tackle that theme. Today's program should have been dead. Stories of people who thought they were going to die and what they learned or did not learn from the experience. We're at Act 2 of our program, maybe six months. Well, Lawrence Steger is a filmmaker and a performance artist here in Chicago. And I told him about Kevin Kelly's story. And it turned out that, um, like Kevin Kelly, at the moment that Lawrence thought he glimpsed the possible end of his life, Lawrence also set out on a big road trip. Title, Road, Treatment. It's shot entirely on video, mostly handheld. Shaky, out of focus, bad color, overblown color, actually. Um, can I get this microphone adjusted a little so I don't have to lean over so much? Yeah, sure. Just pull that. Okay. Check. One, two, three. Um, synopsis. The story concerns Luke. Gay, white, Midwestern, late 20s follows Luke on the day that he's informed of his HIV-positive status. Luke cops a stance of cold, brittle. Not unlike the Harrison Ford narration on Blade Runner, but there's a hint of vulnerability to Luke. Have we got the Harrison Ford or the Rutger Hauer voice? Yeah. Great. Um, roll it. Enhanced 5719. Track 45 left. Great. Take it under me. Story fo- that's great. Story follows Luke. He's accompanied by his college buddy, Bill, and both are packed for a road trip across the country to San Francisco. Let's just kill the Blade Runner. Locations. Car interior. Gas station exterior. HIV clinic parking lot. HIV clinic interior. Highway. The music uh, is Strauss's four last songs, particularly Rua, Minasile, sung by Dame Janet Baker. Okay, can you take it under me? Hold. Follows Luke and his friend Bill to the gas station and to the clinic. Oh, okay, take it out. Take out the Janet Baker. Bill loads one hits of pot while driving on the way to the gas station and to the clinic. 
can we nix that Strauss music? It's kind of too mournful. There, <clears throat> there, there's really no music on the soundtrack. It's uh, stark, crisp. Maybe some songs coming from the radio at the clinic's desk. Great. And definitely on from the car radio, mixed with uh, surfing on an AM radio. But no music. The drama is constantly being undermined through the cool, collective quality of Luke's demeanor. He seems detached. Quote, I'm not sure how I feel. I feel a little sad. Sort of mad. I guess blank. But I'm okay. End quote. Luke thinks he's sounding like a short story assignment in a creative writing class, or worse, trapped inside an artsy novel. Luke imagines himself in a television dramatization of himself. Camera pulls back from behind Luke's head. Sort of on a mini crane. Camera floats. Hovers over the back of Luke's head. The ceiling of the car must be incredibly high, he thinks to himself. Bill pulls into the closest parking spot in the clinic, blows out the last of the one hit, and as he's knocking the brass pipe into the ashtray, turns to Luke with that slightly watery look in his eyes from too much intake. Luke takes it as one of those Care Bear looks that he's experienced before from Bill. There's a moment of anger flashing in Luke when he registers Bill's look. When Bill asks him, What are you thinking about? Luke responds, Who's thinking? Nothing. I hate thinking I'm in a novel, he thinks to himself. Cut to interior of the clinic, the reception area. Can we change this sound bed here? Great. I'm going to take it down just to... Great. The nurse assigned to Luke's anonymous number is a black drag queen named Stephanie, who wears a full nurse's outfit complete with a little paper hat that sits atop of her freshly coiffed hairdo. She's the only one in the clinic who wears a real uniform. Stephanie has the longest fingernails that Luke has ever seen on anyone. Luke thinks briefly about how the fingernails keep on growing even after a person dies, but he pushes that thought away with his fingers to his forehead, wonders why he's thinking about that. It's that novel thing again. Stephanie, the drag queen nurse, walks Luke back to the small cubicles that the tests are administered in, and then used to relay the results. Luke's narrator imagines how many people have been in these cubicles and what they would look like if they were all piled on top of one another. Piles of tested bodies. Cut to Stephanie closing the hollow core door. It makes that hollow core door sound. Do we have that on cart? Perfect. Maybe a shot from a security camera that shows all of the cubicles in the clinic. Luke imagines himself in a George Tooker painting that was reproduced in his sixth grade reader. He wonders what his sixth grade teacher would think of Stephanie. 
he wonders if his sixth grade teacher was ever tested. He imagines her body in the pileup of bodies who have come to the clinic. Stephanie's been saying something and Luke has to blink his eyes again to refocus. He explains to Stephanie that he's been expecting this result, that he's experienced a large share of AIDS, cared for and likewise buried lots of his friends, but it doesn't seem to come as a surprise. Stephanie says, You can cry or hold my hand. I just want you to sit for a moment and let it sink in. Luke thinks, Whatever. Cut to Bill in waiting room, flipping through people's the urine pictures. Cut back to close-up of Luke, forehead wrinkled. He thinks his narrator wants him to get out of the cubicle. He waits for Stephanie to finish her spiel. Thanks her and shakes her hand, getting a slight scrape from one of the fingernails close-up on Luke's hand, no scratch. The walls seem to pulsate as Luke walks down the hallway to the reception area. He tries to be as blank as possible to Bill. Um, I'm not sure about this final section. I know that we talked about it ending on the highway with the car being surrounded by bikers on their way to the Sturgis Bikers Rally, but now, and now I like the idea of it ending on the highway entrance ramp. Okay. Cut to interior of car pulling out of parking lot. Luke keeps looking straight ahead as he murmurs, I'm positive. Long, slow pan from the back of Luke's head to the back of Bill's. There's no reaction in either of their faces, or better, the profiles of their faces. This is the longest shot. They don't look at each other. Perhaps this scene would be shot in blue screen with the camera in the back seat and the sky surrounding the two heads of Bill and Luke having that old, scratchy 16mm time-lapse exposure so the clouds seem to be moving at a rapid pace. Flickers, flips back and forth between real sky and blue screen backdrop. <clears throat> Voice comes up on a car radio. Try not to think of the future, just live in the present moment or something like that. You got that? It comes onto the radio. I also decided that yeah. it was an entirely unnatural and inhumane way to live, and that um, having a future is part of what being human is about, and that when you take away the future for humans, you take away a lot of the humanness, and that it's not actually a very good thing to live entirely in the present, that uh, one needs okay. to have a past. Luke comments to, to Bill, to be fully human. live entirely in the present, huh? Bill drives and looks out the corner of his right eye to see what position Luke is holding his head in. Luke looks outside passenger window and every once in a while turns to glance at Bill. Long pause. There's dead air. Cut to Luke's point of view. Car is pulling onto entrance ramp of highway. Luke sees Hitchhiker with a sign that he scans for any remote meaning to the narrative. Luke sees himself outside of his own story. He can't read the Hitchhiker's sign. He knows that he's on a long, silent journey. He leans over to turn off the radio. Cut to black.
Took out for a ride in my brand new car. I said, Hey, baby, move over close by my side. The chick moved way over to the other side. Oh, oh, you gotta walk home, baby. You gotta walk home, baby. You gotta walk home, baby, cause you just won't treat me right. Act three. This is a show Claudia Perez is doing. And my brother Javier. Shut up. Nobody's none of your friends are gonna listen to this video. Did you ever have any thoughts like oh I'm gonna die? No, I don't gotta Have you ever imagined your death like Hi people go? In April of 1996, how did your day begin, the day that you got shot? So that's a recording of Claudio Perez, who's 19 years old, an occasional contributor to this program, interviewing her 21-year-old brother. And um, her brother had an experience where he and his family thought he might die. And um, Claudia, what, what is on this tape? He's being a big brat. You know, like, he's laying down on the bed and I'm sitting on his wheelchair. And I'm interviewing him. And he keeps trying to grab the microphone from me. You know, tell me what happened. Like, what you see, you know, what you thought of that moment when you got shot. What happened? It happened. Well, I got a hole in my body and I was bleeding. <laughs> that is so stupid. <laughs> so how'd you bring him around? What'd you do? I had to, I had to open up the story. I had to, I had to take him back so he could remember. Well, why don't you take us back? What exactly happened to him? Well, on um, it was April second or April sixth of '96, and um, he had came to the house in the morning, and. He had bought some gym shoes, and he was showing off. Aha, look, I got some gym shoes. I mean, you're not supposed to buy gym shoes because that's not fair because you're not buying some for my little brother. I was like, you're being greedy. Something's going to happen to you for being greedy. I don't know. Then it, I felt weird that day, you know? You just, you know how they say women have this kind of sense? I don't know, but I felt weird. It was, you know, it was quick. It happened quick. Go for the gun quick and then turn around and take off but as soon as I turned around that's when I got shot then everything happened so fast I was there I seen, a, I seen like a white light everybody sees you seen a light but it is weird because you see like a little light everything's like everything's like in slow motion you know I was trying to like oh this is a dream I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to sleep I'm gonna wake up and then I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be home in bed Next to my wife and kids, and it's only a bad dream, you know, I could shake it off. One of his friends, they were going to go party at a bar. And um, they went towards the back of the gameway. You know, they were over there in the back of the gameway. The gameway is? A house of a house. Okay. 
Oh, the gangway. Yeah. Okay. And they were just all talking there. And uh, the guy, you know, stuck out the gun to my brother. My brother tried to take it from his hand. Wait, now this guy came out of where? Was he in a car? Was he No, walking? they were all just over there in the back of the gangway. They were talking. And he tried to rob my brother. And my brother tried to take the gun from him. And the guy didn't, you know. My, my brother, when my brother was trying to run, he shot him in the stomach, which hit his spinal cord. Like I said, I was thinking, I thought, you know, I was thinking I got to get to the front of the house because then if I, if I lay here and bleed, I'll probably just bleed to death. And then, you know, I'll just bleed to death. So I, I, I figured out, you know, try to figure out a way to get to the, to the front of the house. So I dragged myself on my arms. I dragged myself and then some guy was passing by. And I told him, hey, hey, help me, you know, I got shot. He didn't believe me, you know. Just everybody started, big old commotion started happening. Caught an ambulance. And then all of a sudden, my wife and my kid and my sister just got there. I don't know where, I don't know how they found out I was there. When I, he was in the ICU unit, he looked real bad. And he was like, oh, bloody, you know, blood was coming out, whatever. And he's dark skinned, my brother. And at the IC unit, he looked pale. He had no color. And my mom was crying because she's like, oh, my son, he's negrito. Like, he's dark skinned. Where's his, where's his color at? Where's his color? And she was crying, where's my son's color at? And we're begging, like, oh, my son's not, he's not dark no more, you know. Gotta give him his color back, you know, because we would know that he's healthy with his color back. After what three days, three or four days in the ACU, he came and told me that I don't think that I'm gonna be paralyzed. What was your reaction to that? How how did it make you feel? And I don't know. I didn't know how to react to it because you know it never happened to me. I mean, how how am I supposed to know my fucking reaction? What? He usually talks about it freely, nice, but I guess because it's me, he won't talk about it normally because we never me and him we never, never talk about it you know I wanted him to tell me because I never asked him that before and I wanted him to tell me something that I always wanted to know and I was mad because he gave me a dumb answer I expected him to tell me something more um heartfelt yeah, yeah. and he didn't tell me that he just made me ugh, feel like oh my god you're never going to change or something, you know? What have you learned from this experience? Well, I learned a lot of new words and... No, huh? Yeah. You know, I learned a lot of things about spinal cord and, you know, stuff I never paid attention to. Those. You know, like stuff like you really never cared about. Do you appreciate life more now? Hmm. It's the same. Do you think your brother's changed since the accident? He's changed, yeah. He doesn't drink anymore. You know, he thinks more about the future. Like before, he like, oh, day by day, you know? He doesn't drink at all? Not at all. And you could drink when you're when you're paralyzed. You could. He says that he doesn't smoke. And why? Why not? He says he don't want to. He says that he feels stupid. That he looks at, before, you know, when he used to drink all his boys and all his friends, he never seen how stupid they look. And now that he doesn't drink, he sees how stupid they are and that there's no point to drink and get like that anymore. You know? He says that 
he one day he told me that if he ever walked again, he w- he wouldn't take for, it for granted. He told me that once. He goes, I kissed I kissed the ground or something like that. He told me once. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, because we never talk like um nice to each other. You know, we're always like fighting or something about something. And that one day that he told me that, I was like, oh. I felt weird. When he talks nice to me, it feels weird. Like when I was doing the interview, I couldn't look at him because I was like, oh, you get on my nerves, you know, it's just, it's that kind of thing, you know, like we just, we love each other, but we can't stand each other. And when we fight, he still beats me up, even though he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> he still beats me up, but I don't know. It's strange. That hasn't changed. People tell me, how can he beat you up still? And then, like, he does. How does he beat you up? <laughs> <laughs> well, answer that. How, how can he pull that up? I don't know. He does. I don't know. He's just real. It's weird. It's like, I learned after my brother's, like, death experience, almost near, I wrote a poem to him, you know? And I have it at home, but it's like, it's I named a sick brother. You know, and I said, um, I don't remember exactly what I said in it, but I couldn't, I was writing letters to him when he was in the ICU unit because I didn't want to go in there. I didn't want to go in there. And I told him when he was like laying there, I, and I told him I loved them, you know, and I never told him that, but I had to tell him that. I was like, man, in case something happens, you know, I want him to know that I, even though he gets on my nerves, I do love my brother. And... And when you said this to him in the hospital, he was awake and he... No, I wrote it to him. You wrote it to him and he saw it and he read it. He read it. it. And did he say anything about it afterwards? No. And then when he came out of the hospital, it was just like back to normal, like it never happened. Yeah, like... Never. Like whatever. Like sometimes, one day I told him, oh, I love you, brother. Oh, get away from me. He told me, get away from me. So even even nearly dying, that can't... Even nearly dying hasn't changed anything between the two of you. That is true. Very true. Is there any advice you would give to any young people out there who are trying to change their lives the same way you did and they get up in an incident like this? It's going to be the wrong place at the wrong time. Claudia Perez is a college freshman at Moraine Valley, majoring in fashion design. She also works as a hostess at the Continental House of Pancakes on Chicago's South Side. A friend of a friend of mine was misdiagnosed with the disease and nearly died. And it got so bad that in the end, she couldn't get out of bed, had said goodbye to everybody she knew, had given away everything, spent all her money. And she said that when the doctor told her, you'll live, it was actually harder than when he told her, you're going to die. She thought, what now? Well, Cheryl Trick had a similar experience and has our next story. Dr. Fargate tells me how lucky I am. He says surgery was touch and go, and that for an hour or so there I was this close. With his fore and middle fingers side by side, sticking out from the rest of his fist, he demonstrates the proximity. 
You nearly died, he says, smiling, teasing me. But it looks like you'll live. Oh? Why, that's wonderful. Life, one missed opportunity after the other, was this close. My roommate in the hospital tells me how lucky I am. She says that when she arrived, there was no toilet paper or paper towels in the bathroom. How am I supposed to wipe myself without no toilet paper? she asked. Indeed. Great to be alive. Later, I request a private room. But her line of thinking gets me asking questions of my own. Big questions. The biggest questions come at mealtime, such as, What is it? One evening, the nurse comes in with my dinner tray. I situate myself upright in bed so as to feed myself and lift the cover off the entree. They've served me my own pancreas. What's more is they try to pass it off as Italian beef. I tell the nurse there's been a mistake. I think I may have somebody else's tray. No, she says, no mistake. So many questions. So many, many questions. Oh, the morphine drip provides five or six brilliant answers. But I can't remember them now. I blather away the hours in a semi fog of hope that maybe the doctors miss something. Maybe I'm not so lucky after all. Maybe they're wrong about me. Maybe I won't have to return to that world of tending bar and waiting tables and customers with their selfish tastes and relentless hungers for penny ante attention. No more train and bus connections. The flowers and get well cards will keep coming in all day long, the few days I'll have remaining. And friends will flock in from the trees or wherever it is they've been hiding and tell me over and over again how much they love me. They'll tell me, not so much in words, but in the way they massage my feet, get me ice cream, and bring me gifts. Not another book on the mind body connection. Oh, put it with a stack of others there in the corner. Did you find out if Toshiro had any more of those little bed jackets for me? Dr. Fargate comes and goes with his probing brigade. I think the Pakistani has a crush on me. Anyway, he's barely an intern. Later, Dr. Fargate returns, alone, with something serious to tell me. We've taken a second look at your biopsy report. I'm afraid we're looking at stage four. It's critical. Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to talk about my bill. He tells me at this point I should do anything to lift my spirits. That night there is a champagne party in my room for the entire ward. I let one of the nurses wear my bed cap, the one with mink along the brim. A few of us are busted for smoking in the bathroom. Drunk on fool's wit, long after the others have returned to their rooms, I prank phone call various former employers, leaving messages of hellborn prophecy on their voicemail. I make a list of hardships and collection agencies I will escape if I were to die. How soon is now? At night, I dream I am a beekeeper, developing a strain of worker bees that automatically die before their pension fund kicks in. Because the fund only amounts to a thimbleful of pollen, the early death is useful. I wake with the image of me standing before a subcommittee, selling a special gas made from identical molecular bee genetics that can be sprayed on postal employees. I hold a sign that reads, Works until drops dead.
On the edge of the world. How do I sustain interest in a world that I'm scheduled not to be a part of very soon? Matthew Gulish says that when he had cancer, he found that he couldn't cry. He would hear bad news about people who he knew, fellow patients who he heard had died, and he said that he just didn't feel much. It was as if he had arrived at a state where all the events of the world seemed of equal weight, of equal importance. Well, we thought we would give Matthew the last word in today's program. In 1994, six years after I had been cured, an acquaintance of mine contracted lymphoma. I wrote her a letter which I never delivered. Until now. Dear Bridget, as our small party waited for the table talking among ourselves at the Greek restaurant last night, I noticed you looking at the display of fresh foods heaps of hazelnuts, walnuts, leaves of oregano. Bottles of oils on the dark wood cutting block. You watched the cook chopping up onions, and I recognized the look on your face. Events had equalized for you. You had been pulled three quarters out of the world. And I wanted to say what's happening to you is not fair. It's not time yet, and statements of that kind. But when you are leaving the world, you understand that it isn't death that is strange and fearsome, but life. How is this struggling life possible? How are these people possible? How am I possible? I am not. The program was produced by Nancy Updike, Elise Spiegel, and myself. Contributing editors Paul Toff, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rockland. Music help from John Connors, Peter Margusak, and Steve Cushing. Thanks to Bridget Murphy. The first version of this episode of our radio show aired back in 1995. In the years since then, I am sorry to report, Lawrence Steger, the writer and performer in Act Two, has died. A very wonderful man. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds. Other funding comes from the National Endowment for the Arts and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI Public Radio International.